All right, Sam Miller on the podcast round, technically round three, I believe, but this is round two of our little mini series leading up to the seminar. Before we get into the weeds, guys, remember, Sam and I are hosting a seminar. It's 100% official. It's in Seattle. We're hosting at Magnuson Athletic Club. So if you want into the seminar, click the link in the description. Uh, or you can shoot us an email if you want to learn more about this seminar. But that's kind of the point of these podcasts. So you guys can learn what we're going to be go over, going over. So today I am interviewing Sam because last time Sam interviewed me and we got into all things training program design, which I will say I want to do another podcast on no matter what because that was a lot of fun. And we I got a lot of good feedback on that. But today we're going to flip the script. I'm going to interview Sam and we're going to do all things nutrition, which is going to be his main topic at the seminar. So I want to start it off with uh, something that you crush 60% of the time, hundred percent of the time. Um, and that is the difference between a diet and nutrition. So kind of fill me in on, on the role of nutrition and the role of the diet and how those things differ. Yeah. Very important that everyone understands the anchorman sex Panther reference going into uh, this <laughs> podcast. Yeah. 60% of the time works hundred percent of the time. So, uh, I start pretty much every seminar or even some podcasts and some of the live events that we've done in the past. I really like to go over the difference between nutrition and a diet. Uh, specifically for anyone interested in their own personal fitness transformation. But I feel like if you're a coach, being able to outline this for your clients is really key. And what I like to start with is that a diet does not always provide adequate nutrition for performance, longevity, and even to uh, achieve the physical result that you're looking for. Whereas nutrition uh, inherently takes care of the physiology necessary to achieve the physical result that you're looking for in a diet we can manipulate our nutrition. We can be strategic with our nutrition to achieve similar results to a particular dietary style, but a diet is inherently limited by the rules of whatever diet we're following. So I like to think of nutrition as all encompassing. It can uh, incorporate different elements. So whether that's aesthetic goals, longevity goals, health goals, performance goals, uh, but a diet does not always take care of all of those facets. And that's why I feel like it's important for whether you're a client or coach listening I think it's very important to understand the difference between the two and how nutrition can be kind of a lifelong pursuit, whereas a diet can be sort of this fleeting short-term thing that doesn't necessarily bring you the long-term results that you're looking for. So I, I wanted to ask you if, and I think this is a good segue, kind of like if you have a hierarchy to all that, right? So now we're going into nutrition over a diet. What is your hierarchy approach? But you just mentioned some different outcomes. So then I kind of wanted to ask like, and you can decide which to attack first, but like periodizing those things, like how much can we focus on? Like, you know what I want? My, my main goal is aesthetics. I want to get ripped, but I don't want to deteriorate. I want to be healthy. I want to focus on this too. Like how much can we actually do that? Right? Like I want to be the top CrossFitter or athlete or bodybuilder, but I want to make sure my joints are healthy and blah, blah, blah. Like how much, like we talk about the, the triangle of awareness a lot, especially Jason Phillips kind of popularized that how important is that like, can we get away with multiple things and how does nutrition play a role in that? Right. I think you can usually chase two of the three. I think, for example, I think you can be in a calorie deficit and achieve great like biomarkers in terms of your uh, actual blood work and biochemistry. I think you can take care of things like your heart, your joints, like there's nothing, uh, until you reach the extremes of maybe like 5%, 4% body fat where, you know, you are just going to have some joint pain and just the aches and pains of the contest prep if you're bodybuilding. Or, I mean, if you were trying to be that lean doing CrossFit, that's kind of uh, a story for another time, like in itself. But I think you can pursue elements of longevity and aesthetics. I think you can pursue performance and longevity. I think sometimes uh, where we really have to focus on the periodization is performance uh, and aesthetics at the same time would probably be the hardest to to chase just because performance requires fuel, uh, particularly, you know, may need carbohydrates for that. And oftentimes when we're in a calorie deficit or an energy deficit, we're doing that to uh, achieve a particular aesthetic goal. So I don't, it would be really, really hard to do all three at the same time. Obviously, uh, depending on the sport, like that's where performance enhancement comes into play uh, when people are trying to achieve both performance and aesthetic goals at the same time. But as far as for our natural athletes out there, I think we're looking typically at about two elements of the triangle at a time. And that's if you're being very, very strategic with your nutrition, either with a coach or if you map things out and periodize things yourself. 
inside of that, do you feel like it aids? Like if we're t- targeting two things, do you feel like one aids the other or do you feel like it's hard to do both? Because there's people out there that say, you know what, you have to just be okay with sacrificing a little bit of health because you're going aesthetic route. And then there's people that say, no, 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 no. chase health, optimize health. You will lose fat faster. You will lose fat more efficiently. Where do you stand on that role? I think it probably depends on the individual that you're working with and what foods they're willing to eat and their inherent dietary restrictions. I think this is where, you know, we would go back to your original question of the hierarchy of nutrition, right? Because I can create an energy deficit or calorie balance. And I actually read your article the other day about um, strategically having a surplus of protein during a calorie deficit and how up to two grams can have uh, certain muscle preservation and fat loss benefits. So I think that's where we get into a food quality discussion is when we are trying to pursue longevity and calorie deficit at the same time. Can you lose fat in a calorie deficit following an if it fits your macros type approach? Yes, but like then you're not taking into account gut health or um, particular like nutrient assimilation and things of that nature. So yes, we know that a calorie is a unit of energy and we're measuring that. Um, And just kind of how, you know, I actually used this in a conversation with a coach the other day, but you can walk into a gym, you can read that the dumbbell says that the weight is 10 pounds, but uh, really our left arm, if we're doing a bicep curl, doesn't know that it's 10 pounds. We perceive tension and we happen to know because we read the side of the dumbbell that it's 10 pounds, but actually what your body perceives is tension and we can manipulate that with time under tension and various things. I think calories and energy and food quality are similar to that in the sense that yes, our body like does kind of know what this calorie is, but really it's just this measurement created by scientists to help explain what our food does in our body. And when we kind of zoom out for a second and then we think like, okay, what's within that actual calorie or unit of measurement? How are we optimizing that actual calorie for calorie? I think that's where we end up in a food quality discussion. And I think um, assuming we're not putting undue stress on the body and we're pursuing that calorie deficit in an intelligent manner, I think you can preserve health for a really long time until you probably reach that last phase where maybe we're, uh, you know, overreaching on purpose or you have a competition coming up and maybe there's a week or two or three or four where we've planned for it to be a little bit harder on your body. But in the whole like macro cycle of a diet, it doesn't mean that all 16 weeks are necessarily going to be unhealthy. And I think that's why planning ahead of time and maybe bringing that person to that diet in a healthier place after a reverse diet or a period of maintenance is going to set them up a lot better for the calorie deficit overall. So I think where we, when we're looking at, if we're using that triangle example, the longevity component is going to be encompassed by food quality and then using a calorie deficit to improve markers like insulin sensitivity and things of that nature. Um, the aesthetic portion is achieved not only through the energy balance or energy deficit that we're accomplishing, but strategic training and strategic nutrition and how you're going to feel and whether you're hungry all the time, like that's where food quality is going to come in. Are you eating enough fiber, healthy fats, things like that, that are going to, you know, potentially even make the journey, you know, to fat loss a little bit easier, uh, physically, even if it might be harder mentally to like deprive certain flexible dieting foods. I think something to point out too, for people is like, one, you have to, track all these things because that's the only way you'll know if you're actually healthy and feeling good but something to remember too is the reason why like bro foods work is because you can measure them pretty accurately right like if you're even if you're eating quote-unquote healthy foods from trader joe's or a restaurant the measurements are all really off or if it's in a package like the label is up to 20 percent inaccurate and they're allowed to do that right. so that means your macros aren't actually on point. So a lot of times people are like, oh no, I started eating really clean and I lost a bunch of weight. And it's like, well, no, your macros are just way more accurate. That's really what it comes down to. So I think sometimes eating clean comes down to more than just like health as a marker. But um, going past that, let's talk more about the hierarchy. How do you implement this with your clients? And, and I'd be interested in uh, kind of like the question you asked me, how did I transition from you know in-person to online with programming I'd be interested in just your transition, getting into nutrition period with programming it out for your clients. Like how do you kind of structure it? What do you think the missing links are for coaches? So on and so forth. So I think as far as the transition, I think nutrition actually um, can, can be a fairly seamless transition. If you have the right systems in place, I think the one takeaway I'd say if your coach listening to this podcast is 
always, always, always start someone with a food log because awareness, and I do the same thing, even leaving a seminar, whether I'm talking at a gym or group of people or a corporate session is if you don't have awareness or you don't know what your current status quo is, there's no way that we can manipulate or make changes regardless of Cody and I could have the best strategy for you in the world and know all the science in the world. But if you don't track and have awareness and start from that baseline of knowing what your day-to-day intake is, there's very little that we can really do from there. Um, regardless of where you shop, like just cause you go to whole foods doesn't mean that you shouldn't track your food to start out with, with a coach. You know, you need that, um, three to seven day food log, probably more is better. Um, I usually require at least a couple weekdays and a weekend day so I can see variances in your schedule and food preferences, social time, things that are important to you, and then kind of work backwards from there and reverse engineer it. Um, you know, as far as my hierarchy, I usually start off with calories and macronutrients, but uh, knowing what I know now and just under, understanding energy balance and that protein has four calories per gram, fats, nine calories per gram, um, you know, and carbs four as well, that I can basically, by manipulating your macros, I'm manipulating your calories. So really, I started at the top, like, we're kind of looking at the bottom of the pyramid and working our way up. We're looking at calories and macronutrients followed by things like micro, micronutrients and nutrient timing. And then on top of that, uh, we'll then have things like supplementation and kind of that last um, five to 15%, depending on the person on how we're filling in those gaps. So I think that's going to hold true in a in-person scenario and also hold true online as well. You're going to start with the food log and then you have to assess where the person is in their fitness journey. Is this someone that's going to benefit from just a simple calorie and macronutrient awareness? Or does this person really have their day-to-day nutrition dialed in in their macros and they can now focus on the finer points that are going to optimize recovery and improve their their sessions and looking at things like food quality and making swaps to optimize digestion and uh, exercise performance and things like that if somebody has just an aesthetic goal at what point do you skip towards those higher parts of the hierarchy meaning we dialed in their macros. We know that they're hitting their macros, but they're at a plateau and they're not seeing progress. Do I just tweak their macros more or do I skip ahead up higher up the hierarchy and start messing with meal timing and micronutrients and stuff like that? How do you go about that? And how do you make that judgment call? So most of our clients now, for the most part, we're, we're getting on the phone with them and learning their personality kind of from that initial call coming in. And you'll start to cultivate an awareness as a coach of what type of person you're working with. There's going to be the person that's eating the same foods every single day and hitting their macros. And then there's people that are supposedly hitting their macros, changing the foods every day, variety everywhere. And, um, you know, combination of eating out and all these other things. And for an aesthetic goal, you know, we may want a little bit more simplicity in there. So I'm, I may move up the ladder and look at things like micronutrients or let's say they do a check-in and in their biofeedback, they're hungry all the time. And I see, hey, you're, you're hitting your macros, but like your carbohydrate sources are not filling at all um, and essentially, you know, not stabilizing you know, your blood sugar or leading to these other issues. I might go in and instead of tweaking the macros, I might make some suggestions around Hey, this is what you're typically eating in this meal. Here's a here's a great substitution that might make a significant difference in the course of your day to day. Or are you training in the morning? Are you training in the evening? How can we manipulate that? I think with aesthetic goals, you do kind of assuming they're being intelligent about the basics. I think you can pass go and like begin to dive in past macros. I love that. So let's dive in. Uh, I want to go deeper into the pyramid. And then I have a couple personal questions about your nutrition that I'm just curious about. Um, going further up the, the pyramid, I think we can all, everybody listening to this kind of knows that macros come first. Like that's going to be the biggest thing. Everybody here knows that broccoli is better than Pop-Tarts. We know we have to focus on micronutrients too. But everybody always wants to know about workout nutrition, what you suggest, what you think is best for fat loss versus hypertrophy and stuff. So I just want to kind of get your all-encompassing intake and uh, just perspective on peri-workout nutrition period. Like what are your philosophies and, and strategies on that? Sure. Yeah. So I... um prioritize as far as pre-workout starting from we'll kind of start pre and then carry it through assuming that we're around like a three hour period between pre during and post Um, pre-workout my focus is digestion and basically eliminating like you don't want to select foods that are going to make you bloat yes broccoli is healthy a salad is healthy per quote unquote depending on what you put in it but 
uh, I'm really looking at the type of nutrients and the effect it's going to have both on my blood sugar. And then uh, I don't want to be digesting a ton of food or have distension or bloat or discomfort in my stomach that's going to compromise the exercise performance. So I'm looking at a blend of protein, carbohydrates, and fats. It can be solid food. It can also be some protein powder with something like oats or cream of rice or a potato or really depending on the person's macros, we're going to manipulate the percentage. Um, you know, it may be upwards of 50% of their carbohydrates are coming around that pre, during and post-workout period, depending on that person's goals and their carbohydrate tolerance and things of that nature. Are we doing more of a time carb approach? Or are we just spreading them evenly throughout the day to stabilize energy levels? So looking at that, I'm probably not doing a ton of fat. I love Personally, like I like grass-fed meats and beef and stuff like that, but it's probably not the best time to do that pre-workout unless you have a stomach of steel and you have some time to digest before you're working out. So I like to go with, usually if you're looking at meats or solid foods, you're looking at white-colored or yellow-colored foods. Uh, it's a really easy way to think about it. Chicken, turkey, fish, egg whites, like just generally by color, you can kind of sort. So I'll teach clients kind of that. Same thing with carbohydrates. Usually, you know, while colorful greens and, and peppers and different phytonutrients are definitely important for your health, uh, having those pre-workout can sometimes lead to indigestion and not really be the best because they're so dense in terms of fiber per the amount of grams and, and food that you're having. And they're just very voluminous. So clean foods tend to have a certain amount of volume there. So pre-workout, I'm really prioritizing kind of um, moderate fats, relative to the person's total intake throughout the day, carbs, and then a serving of protein pre-workout. Uh, this obviously depends if they're working out first thing in the morning or kind of midday or, or later in the day. So we'll tweak that according to the person's schedule. During the workout, uh, I think this is going to depend on if you're doing like CrossFit or bodybuilding or just kind of resistance training or training as an athlete or how long your session is. I think the longer the session, the more intense your training the more history you have under the bar or in the gym, you're likely going to want to add a carbohydrate and amino acid solution uh, has been shown to help with muscle protein synthesis and prevent muscle protein breakdown. Uh, I've also written an entire article on this and Cody and I covered it a lot on the last podcast um, in terms of the effects of insulin being counter-regulatory to cortisol, the effects that you get from that in terms of muscle sparing and then also starting the recovery process. If you think about it, intra-workout nutrition is kind of post-workout nutrition in the sense that uh, once you complete your first set or your first exercise, you're kind of at post-workout for that particular movement. And that's kind of a oversimplification, but I heard Scott Stevenson explain it that way once and I really liked the way that uh, that sounded. So something like highly branched cyclic dextrin, cluster dextrin, essential amino acids, or um, PeptoPro or some type of tripeptide can be very, very helpful depending on your budget and what your grand scheme of nutrition is across the day. Moving to post-workout, uh, also, for example, if I just did a CrossFit Metcon, maybe I'm not downing all of those carbs and that amino acid solution because I'm really hauling ass through that particular training session, maybe I'm going to drink that amino and carbohydrate immediately post-workout because I don't want to throw up like the liquid that I'm drinking because I'm, you know, pushing it that hard. So within reason, just time it closely to your session. And if you're just doing more of a strength phase or resistance training, just sip on it throughout. And uh, then you can move to more of a solid meal post-workout. I think if uh, you've had your pre-workout nutrition in place and you've had some liquid nutrition during the workout, I think you can kind of take your time, either have dinner or lunch or breakfast after your session and have a solid food with a mix of protein, carbohydrates, and fats. I think if you haven't had the pre-workout nutrition or you haven't had the intra-workout nutrition, I think then the timing matters a bit more because what you're eating before is likely either still uh, present in the bloodstream as blood glucose or available for energy if it's you know, if you, assuming you had that meal, if you didn't have a meal or maybe you just had a shake pre-workout or you had something, or maybe you're fasted, I think that changes the game in terms of what you need for post-workout nutrition. So very careful to examine context when it comes to pre-post, pre and post-workout nutrition, as well as intra-workout nutrition, and then also the energy demands of the session and how um, trained that athlete is. Cause you're going to have people who are beginners who can probably make progress regardless, or you'll have advanced people. Uh, you'll have folks who are waking up and training first thing in the morning because that's the only time they can do it. 
you have people training after work. So there's really so many variables. You just need to think of the basic tenets of uh, prioritize digestion pre-workout and stabilize blood sugar so that you don't go have a blood sugar crash or go hypoglycemic during the session. Optimize performance so you have enough energy to like complete your working sets. And then if intra and post, your goal is to minimize muscle protein breakdown and muscle protein synthesis and kind of kickstart that recovery so you're not starting in a deficit um, after training. So these are kind of those top layers of the pyramid that we were talking about earlier, ways to optimize things beyond you know your initial macros and calories assuming that is already in place and you have those habits so you mentioned and i know people are going to grab this and, and want to say something so you mentioned 50 percent of somebody's calories or carbohydrates might come around the workout and i just want to like touch on that real quick when do you make that judgment call um and if like as far as how like should it be 25 percent? should it be 30 percent? should it even be a concern whatsoever to be a percentage of somebody's carbohydrates when do you make that judgment call and why and then also if you can just touch on when the role of this whole, whole nutrient timing game even even comes about because i know i have my opinion but there's a lot of people that kind of are in a camp right like daily macros are all that matters like stop worrying about all this bullshit like science proved it it's just daily consumption and then there's other people who like to get into the nitty-gritty and say we should time stuff we should have pre-post intra workout nutrition we should be focusing on carbohydrates coming and that was actually one of the questions somebody submitted for you is like carbohydrates should be separated in one part of the day versus the other to control insulin levels. Like, can you just dive into all of this? And this could lead to a huge rant for all I know, but I want to know like your take on why you mentioned 50% and then what you think like the judgment call needs to be about as far as like that whole topic goes. Yeah. Same thing happened on Jason's podcast. He's like, put a percentage on how much fat someone should have in the day for healthy hormone production. <laughs> it depends. But so don't, I want, like, you know what? You were the first person I've ever heard say 0.4 grams per pound. And I was like, damn, that's like one of the things I, I've said that. And I've had people say 0.4 grams per pound. And I'm like, yeah, you never. And I'm that. like, why, why is that bad? I feel like that's, you know, I don't know. But we agree on a lot of shit. So that's probably yeah, why. Like, it, we're, yeah, dude. Um, that makes more sense to me than a percentage. Like, because it's not based on a caloric intake. It's based on your body weight because calories are kind of relative. But anyway, <laughs> back to the I think, I think Jason took it as a percentage and not as grams. But yeah, grams kind of relative to your protein and fat consumption. It keeps things in balance. And um, if you look at most females and males and who you're doing diets for and you go back and you think about it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's really not that far. Unless you're intentionally like loading fats or intentionally pulling them out because a person has like a digestive issue or something like that. But all right, going back to that. So the 50% was kind of arbitrary. I did say in some cases, so please uh, listen to all the words. But um, the reason I say that is because let's say you are having like someone with, once you get to a point where maybe you're having like 300 grams of carbs a day, um, well, hunger in that sense for the average size person or even slightly bigger is probably less of an issue, right? So if I have a very petite female with not a lot of macros to work with, I want to diversify my proteins, carbohydrates, and fats throughout the day to make sure this diet is sustainable. They're not hungry all the time. They're not crashing. But I might have a guy, great example right now, working with um, one of my clients as an attorney. He needs to be really focused in the morning, doesn't do that great with carbs. He doesn't train in the morning, usually is having a protein and fat-based breakfast, really enjoys having like a late afternoon evening training session does very well with like after lunch beginning those carbohydrates and then ultimately carrying those through the session and then eating dinner or a post-workout meal that contains carbs and then kind of having a protein based meal to end the day works really well for a lot of people but that's you know there are other variables so how many calories do i have to work with what is your appetite like are you really struggling to hit your macros do you have an appetite or are you just kind of like eating whatever? If any of this stresses you out, I'm not going to use it with a client. So my philosophy is like if the macros themselves or nutrient timing or any of these things become the bane of your existence to the point where you're stressing about it and it's not easy for you to implement, then let's not do it because I honestly think that your psychological state when eating and trying to figure all this out and overwhelming yourself is going to be more detrimental than actually like getting it right in the first place. So I'm going to look at what you can adhere to and, and be compliant with. But uh, let's say someone is super OCD, super focused, super type A, they want to do everything right. And like, they really don't care. Their appetite is managed. They just want to have great performance in the gym. And they're busy the rest of the day. 
but for whatever reason, like their pre and post workout meals are totally uninterrupted and they're going to have like 25 to 50 grams of cyclic dextrin during a workout. Um, I think that's totally feasible for a lot of people. And, uh, that's where personality type comes into play. And I'm going to have that person do it because I'm going to notice a difference in their recovery. They're going to notice a difference in their recovery. You know, you mentioned the camp that says, Oh, calories, this and macros are all that matter. And I think for a vast majority of the population, not necessarily the people listening to this podcast, that that would do them, you know, that would really benefit them. They would, they would make tons of progress just by implementing calorie control and macronutrient, um, you know, balance across their week, across their day, having awareness of their food intake. You know, America is overweight, we're obese, we have diseases. I think it's huge. And that camp is correct for the people that are on the couch watching Netflix, eating Twinkies and not tracking their food. For athletes and and the audience that I think we speak to, I think people want more than that. And I think even just using anecdotal evidence and some of the studies more recently from 2016, 2017, beyond, I mean, even the International um, Society of Sports Nutrition came out with an article about muscle protein synthesis and essential amino acids during training and carbohydrates and the effect of a carbohydrate and amino acid solution on recovery because we're not always talking about fat loss or we're not always talking about building muscle, but what about just not losing muscle or recovering, not being sore, being able to implement um, different training frequencies, right? So if I'm going to train a body part more frequently, I can recover faster regardless of um, you know, and keep that in, in calorie balance, ultimately, I'm going to be able to either build more muscle or become more proficient at the activity that I'm doing. If I'm working with a strength athlete, part of becoming more proficient as a powerlifter is performing the movements frequently for the neurological adaptation to the movement. And if I can keep you from getting super sore, and you can get back in the gym and do that movement, you're going to make progress in terms of what you're looking at. I think the same people that talk about macros and calories and that being the only thing that matter, they're just looking at scale weight and body fat percentage and saying, okay, this is why this doesn't matter. Don't buy amino acids and don't buy carbohydrates. But if you gave me a controlled group of 50 clients or 25 clients and they're willing to follow this diligently and we track their biofeedback and their recovery, they're going to say that they subjectively feel less sore, whether it's a placebo effect or not. If their performance is improving, they're training more frequently, they're having better outcomes from the training session, I'm going to continue to implement that uh, along with some of the science that does support it. And I'm going to frame that intra-workout nutrition uh, in the context of their daily intake. So if the person is in a deficit, maybe doesn't get that many carbs, okay, maybe we're going to rethink using powdered carbohydrates because hunger is an issue right now. But if I have wiggle room and that person's not running a huge deficit or really prior prioritizing training frequency and muscle gain, then I think it's an intelligent tool to use, assuming they have optimized the base layers of the pyramid that we talk about. Uh, and that's just something that I've noticed both anecdotally for myself, my clients, and then talking to other coaches who have used similar approaches uh, in terms of manipulating that over time. I know our first podcast, we dive into that a lot in terms of uh, we talked about several other guys that use that philosophy as far as John Meadows and uh, different people. I think it came primarily from bodybuilding, but I think it does come into play with some of your more advanced clients and your athletes, for sure. Hey guys, I want to take a brief moment to remind you about the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site. This is literally the perfect place for you. The reason I know this is because you're listening to this podcast and anybody who listens to this podcast is a go-getter and an action taker. You are a person who is seeking information and education to better your body, better your performance, and finally transform your physique. I know this because people listening to this podcast really just seek results. And the one way to get better results is better training programs, but not only intelligently designed programs that actually build in progressions and avoid injuries along the way, but a place that's actually going to teach you how those programs are built. See, a lot of coaches and clients alike have insecurities about what they're putting on the piece of paper. Whether you're programming for yourself or you're programming for your clients, you probably have an insecurity or a lack of confidence in the programs you are creating. You probably question yourself. Are these programs actually going to work? Am I going to get injured along the way? When a plateau happens because it's bound to happen, what do I do? How do I adjust? How do I move through this plateau and finally start seeing results again? See, the Boom Boom Elite is not only a place to give you the programs that avoid these things and actually give you results, have built-in progressions, and make sure that you're not getting injured along the way, 
but it's a place that's going to educate you on how those things are actually built into the programs. So now you have longevity in your results. You can actually adhere to them because you know what the hell is going on behind the scenes. And you can start creating your own programs that actually work and you have the confidence to know that they will work. So next time you put whatever you put on the piece of paper, you and your clients are confident and feel comfortable and actually believe in the system. Not to mention they're actually going to get results, which is the reason why we do this in the first place. So because you're listening to this podcast, And because I know you're perfect for this, I wanted to take a second to just remind you about the membership site because this is the place that I spend every single day communicating with the environment, communicating with the community about training, about nutrition, about supplementation, about all the things that go inside of coaching. So if you want access to the Boom Boom Elite, click the link in the description below or go to boomboomperformance.com slash elite and sign up today. And without any further ado, let's get back onto this podcast. I love that, dude. And I think it's important for people to understand that like you've mentioned the word anecdote quite a bit of times. And the reality is, is even people who do love the science, do love the research, or even in the research, if you're coaching, you, you need to use experience and anecdote as well. Because the reality is, is there are tons of studies on calorie consumption, and a lot of them just deal with sedentary, overweight, elderly individuals, for example. Like That's not extremely applicable to a 23-year-old CrossFit athlete or a bodybuilder or a physique sport athlete, period. There's not that many of people in this world that we're talking about who are willing to do a study and change everything inside their life so that you can get the manipulations of your study correct. I had the same same conversation with a client yesterday about fasting, and I was saying, you know, a lot of the studies that are out there will take people who are fasting for religious reasons like Ramadan, and then they will retroactively assess that person's biomarkers based off of the fact that they were fasting anyways for religious reason versus, you know, you look at the ethics of like animal studies versus human studies. When you move into human studies, um, unless the person already has a disease and you're offering them a treatment, putting them in a treatment group relative to a placebo, it's not super, you know, they're, they run into ethical issues or how many people want to willingly be deprived of food as part of a fasting experiment or, you know, um, follow this precise intra-workout protocol that we're talking about. And some universities will do it and they'll have student groups that will participate. But this is where I think science can go beyond just the extent of uh, what's done in a lab or what's done in a university setting. Those are important, but I think you also have to have client experience and personal experience and try these things so that you can tell for yourself and, and understand the impact and implications that, that they have. Uh, so, you know, in that example, I walked through with the client, I was like, well, really is fasting going to work with you? Here's what your daily calories are. How can we spread these out? Here are some of the side effects of fasting. You might be hungry. How can we control your appetite? Um, you know, we're still looking for calorie deficit across the day. And here's what happens to females in the thyroid when they perceive that there's not food around. And why does that matter for pregnancy and cycle health and all these things? So, you know, this is where you have to go a layer beyond what you're seeing on paper and what people are talking about on Instagram, because I think to only look at that surface level, you're not really doing the topic justice and you're kind of being closed minded to the information that's out there. And ultimately, if you're going to be closed minded, you're not benefiting your clients because there might be one client that would benefit from cyclic dextrin or fasting. And then there's another client who might not benefit from, you know, diet XYZ or philosophy ABC. So, you know, just keep that in mind as you're kind of working through these more advanced topics that you do have to take a case by case approach. hundred percent. Me and Lauren were talking about this on the last podcast we just did. And, and we were talking about, cause she, uh, Cliff Wilson does her prep and she was talking about like ultra high protein diets. And that's a great example. Like we don't have a ton of studies that show anything beneficial over like 0.7, 0.8 grams per pound, but people like Cliff who get Guys absolutely fucking shredded for stage and maintain a quite a bit of muscle mass, swear by going, you know, 1.2 grams, 1.3 grams, because they find anecdotally that it helps their athletes. So how are we going to argue with somebody that's put thousands of people on stage, right? Like there's just not many studies on bodybuilders to prove that. Um, and, and while we're on this topic, uh, because there was a study, actually there's a couple studies I wanted to bring up. One, I just read this uh, review and it was, I don't know if you saw this, but they did fasted cardio and it was fasted whey protein or casein protein prior, and they found more fat oxidation in fat loss with the casein protein prior, surprisingly enough, um, which was just an interesting study that I found. What's that? Yeah. I, I would think, so whey protein based on the leucine content 
you may get more of an insulin response versus casein being more slower digested yeah. and the rate of blood glucose would enter into the bloodstream. And casein is viewed as more of an anti-catabolic option, whey protein being more fast absorbing and anabolic. Now this is in a vacuum, you guys. So if you mix it with water, that's one thing. If you start mixing it with like almond milk and fats and peanut butter and bananas, like all yeah. of a sudden now created a mixed meal. So if we're talking about the powder in a vacuum and the amino acid content, I mean, the only reason I could think of the casein so the casein was better than the total fasted group and the yeah. whey group. Yeah. Okay. So, and here's the thing, here's the thing with that too, people is like, this is one study to prove that. And there's also studies that prove whey proteins better. There's also studies that prove fasting is going to have more fat oxidation because you don't have anything. Like there's plenty of science and, and research to show all different areas, but I was kind of just using this as an example of like, this is one study. So until eight more come out proving this theory, right with different individuals, different controlled groups, so on and so forth. We can't like swear by this one theory because there's a study to prove everything. And there's a study to combat every other study and say that it's not true. So you just have to take these things with a grain of salt. And like Sam said, like anecdote experience and individuality is like really the key of all this. The other study I was yeah. going to bring up is they did a um, one on a bodybuilding prep. It was like 24 weeks long. And basically they, they did, they were looking at like testosterone decline over a prep. But one thing they noticed is that the most successful bodybuilders, as far as muscle mass retention, they all followed a high fat or I'm sorry, a high carb, low fat diet. A lot of them, I mean, all of them had uh, testosterone suppression, but I am just curious on your thoughts of high carb versus high fat, so on and so forth. Like it, beyond just adherence, like obvious, the obvious answer is like whatever you can adhere to is what you should do because calories do matter most. When do you decide or uh, what do you think, what's your opinions on a high carb versus a high fat? Like, when do you like to see that? And, and if you have total control, kind of like that blog you referred to that I wrote, it's like, I have full control over everything. What do you uh, suggest people do? So is that the UNC, is that the Purdue study? The, um, so UNC, it was like University of North Carolina, but it was uh, Andrew I think, Purdue. I think, Purdue. and I think Peter Fishin might've been involved with it too. I'm not 100% I sure. I read it on J-I-S-S-N. Uh, I always butcher that when I try to say it fast. <laughs> yeah, so this is a definite depends. And also, like, are we talking about natural athletes? Are we talking about athletes on performance-enhancing drugs? Uh, that's a whole other thing too, right? Like fasting cardio for someone with naturally higher anabolic tendencies from exogenous substances is going to preserve more muscle regardless of like fasting cardio or HIT or anything else, uh, just based on their internal physiology. This is also kind of the same thing when it comes to the macro distribution is um, some people, and there are appetite differences where some people seem to do better with carbohydrates, other people do better with fats. Personally, during my own contest prep or physique or bodybuilding experience, I tend to mix it, but do kind of a timed carb approach seem to work well or carbohydrate cycling as opposed to always being low fat or always being uh, high carb and, and working within the framework of that. This is where you will have individual differences between athletes. I think protein is going to be pretty imperative for those people. And then um, it is interesting that they were low, low fat, high carb, but as you said, like they did have like their hormone levels did kind of tank. So that's not super surprising, but also that's part of just the calorie deficit and probably the thyroid response. And then if these are, were these male athletes or female? So it was, right? it was male and female. And I believe that, um, I mean the, like literally across the board, everybody had testosterone suppression, hormonal suppression. And that was basically because like you said, like calories were so low and that's just given on a conscious prep. If you're getting on stage, you know that your hormones are going to take a hit. It's just part of it. But, um, and, and when I say low fat, I don't want people to assume these people are consuming like 5% of their total calories of fat. I mean like below 20%. So like when they start tapping into, you know, 15%, like a low fat diet, but they're still, their, their main means of like caloric restriction was coming from fat and they were trying to maintain as high uh, carb as possible. And then some of the participants, I believe were like dropping carbs pretty low and keeping fats higher on purpose. So I think that was the associated difference. And what they noticed is that the people who did that with a higher carb um, 
just place better and they, they had better muscle retention and that could be, does, is carbohydrate as a nutrient protein sparing and like literally spares tissue or is it the fact that you have more carbohydrates, you perform a little better, therefore your intensity is a little bit higher in your training, therefore you maintain muscle because of that. So I think it's kind of up in the air of why it happened. Yeah, hundred percent. Probably a little bit of both. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. So that's, I mean, that's probably the type of thing you and I could talk about for a whole day. But for those of you listening at home, like, you know, start with calorie deficit and then, you know, manipulate based off of your personal needs. And hopefully you have some dietary experience before jumping into a contest prep or trying to get super shredded. And, you know, you can be mindful of your hunger cues and what foods work well for you and then kind of go from there. I could see how also, usually if a bodybuilder has a higher basal metabolic rate and ultimately more muscle mass, if the total calories are higher, despite the fact that they're dieting, even if the percentage of fat was lower relative to the other nutrients, the total grams of fat was likely still more than the average individual dieting, if that makes sense. 100%. So let's say like their you know, off season is between three and 4,000 calories. Let's say they're wrapping up their diet in the low twos you know, even if they're having 40 or 50 grams of fat, that's probably, or even 60, you know, that's, even though that's low for them, that's still more than the average individual with less muscle mass. Just the main difference is they've subtracted calories from fat as opposed to calories from carbohydrate. Yeah. So the way I would think of that as like a potential goal. If they had healthy metabolisms and like were starting at a very high calorie level and kind of working down from there, uh, we just have to, you know, I think there's probably something to be said both about the protein sparing effect and then also muscle glycogen, like in the type of training they're doing relative to, uh, their, their dietary strategy. So I, and this is why I like using grams versus percentages. I don't think percentages are as individual as it could be. And that we mentioned that earlier going into this topic and kind of covering everything we're covering. I'm just curious. And, and as you probably would have guessed, a bunch of the questions came in about hormones. Cause I said, I was having you on the podcast. So what role, what is the biggest, uh, factors, I guess, or like the main priorities that you see with nutrition and hormones being connected? Like, how are you going to influence hormones? The greatest through nutrition? Is it a specific macro? Is it just overall calories? Is it specific ingredients or nutrients, micronutrients? Like where do you kind of like, is there a hierarchy in this? Like what do you prioritize when we're talking about hormones and nutrition? I like to look at it kind of thematically. So when I talk about hormones and generally why someone, whether it's a thyroid issue or a cycle issue for females or low testosterone for men, we have a certain level of cumulative stress on the body. If we were to create like a T-chart or input table of sympathetic, parasympathetic activities, and thinking about uh, anabolic periods or stressful or catabolic periods, what I like to do is just try to begin to balance that out through nutrition. Now, that could be increasing calories, or it could be nutrient timing, or it could be several other factors. So we have to really look at the individual there. But I think of manipulating nutrition as a way to remove stress from the body uh, through the decisions that we're making with food and recovery inputs like sleep and uh, managing life stress and stuff like that. So for example, someone who's training super hard but uh, and is rather advanced but doesn't have a great workout nutrition protocol, hey, one way I can pull stress off their body is by making some qu pretty quick adjustments to their training, uh, or excuse me, to their nutrition around their training uh, for someone that's been in a calorie deficit for a really long time, I'm probably going to reverse diet them to manipulate their hormones. Someone who's been in a calorie surplus or at maintenance or maybe doesn't have a comprehensive understanding of nutrition or has poor fasted blood glucose and a number of other factors, maybe that person needs a calorie deficit to improve their hormones. So you have to remember that our hormones are responding to things. They're essentially these signals and precursors uh, as a result of various inputs and stressors in our body. So our whole HPTA or HPG axis in men or HPA axis in females is constantly scanning our environment for different stressors. And that would include food, that would include our training volume, includes recovery, sleep, and overall life stress and sympathetic activities. So nutrition is just one vehicle for manipulating that. And so that's why I start a little bit more broadly and say, hey, this person's hormones are messed up because they're overweight and they probably need to improve their management of blood glucose and their thyroid is messed up because they're not really exercising a ton. 
uh, versus someone who is type A, highly stressed, very fast paced work environment, doing two a days and underfeeding, you know, there's totally different circumstances there. In both cases, you're probably looking at some thyroid issues, or maybe on the other side, you've got thyroid and cortisol issues. But um, we're taking different approaches. But either way, the nutrition is alleviating stress on the body. So in one case, there's stress from inactivity and stress from poor lifestyle choices and dietary choices. And on the other side, you have stress from lack of food and overactivity. And we're basically trying to restore this equilibrium so that the body is then happy and functioning as it should be uh, within a particular range, if that makes sense. It's kind of a broad oversimplification using two cases, but hopefully that helps people understand how nutrition can serve within the greater context of the load of physical stress that's on the body. Yeah, no, and it does make sense because at the end of the day, and people listen to this podcast, hear me say it all the time, it always depends, right? Every situation, every person is always different. And I think at the end of the day, we got to look at what's missing and kind of fill that gap to restore that equilibrium balance that you just mentioned. My next question with that would be, how much can we actually do about it compared to going the drug or medicine route? Like people, I mean, it's obvious there's kind of this battle between like nutrition and lifestyle and functional medicine and then doctors and big pharma, right? Like where is like, how much can we actually influence it? And at what point do you have to kind of throw in the white flag and say, you know, you do need testosterone replacement or you do need to supplement or take medicine for this thyroid issue? So I think age matters here, right? Like context is super important. I think realistically looking at how much someone can change their life, how much they're willing to change their life versus the easier route. You know, when you, when you opt for a replacement or you opt for conventional medicine, there's an override switch that's happening. You are now engaging in putting an exogenous hormone or substance in your body, hitting that override switch on your HPTA and saying, hey, here's this hormone, we're good. Um, you know, and guys, you're now basically, unless you're taking other precautionary measures, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone are now going to downregulate because we're sensing this exogenous substance. Those are the precursor or trigger luteinizing hormone um, for testosterone. So coming from the pituitary and then ultimately we produce the, um, you know, total testosterone that's coming out of that. So I'm very much in the middle. I think I love functional medicine. I love nutrition. I love training and I love intelligent supplementation, but I also understand that there are cases where, you know, conventional medicine is here for a reason. And we were, we created, um, hormone replacement for a reason. There are people with physical injuries. And I talk about this, um, in the masterclass that we're doing for men's health, but Basically, there will be certain physical cases or trauma or genetic conditions where you need that override to live your healthiest life. And there are cases where bioidentical hormones can be intelligently used to help with lifespan. And I think one thing that we forget, especially in the case of males, is testosterone is really vital and the balance with estrogen is very vital in cardiovascular health. So someone who has chronic low testosterone, low estrogen, not only... Um, are they not going to feel as good because now we run into issues with serotonin and anxiety, depression, not to mention the energy levels recovery in the gym, but now that's compounded. We're looking at other physiological issues like cardiovascular health and overall outcomes for lifespan. And I would never want to jeopardize a client by saying, you know, Hey, I'm Sam, the nutrition hormone guy and compromise their quality of life 20 years from now, just because I think that, I'm really good at nutrition. I think you have to look out for your, your client's long-term best interests. And the blood work is repeatedly not changing or labs aren't changing or you've tried all of these different things to help them naturally. It's okay to reach for a more conventional approach. You just want to find a doctor that's very intelligent with implementing it and understands the different facets of it. There are a lot of primary care physicians who are trained in primary care, but not endocrinology. So look for an endocrinologist or a men's health specialist, or in the case of women, you know, looking for someone that specializes in your female hormones, or if it's a thyroid condition, looking for someone that specializes in thyroid. I think uh, in both cases, what we're looking at is ego, right? So like people want to do it the way that they were trained and stuff like that. I try to, to extract myself from that situation and remember like, Hey, the client ultimately matters. And like, I don't get a trophy if 
because I gave this person more carbs, their testosterone levels went up. But uh, I don't want to undervalue the nutrition training and lifestyle either because you'll see people improve uh, significantly, both percentage or in terms of their biomarkers. Uh, like if we're talking about testosterone, you might get 100 or 200 nanograms per deciliter through uh, removal of stress, more sleep, and uh, improvements in that. There are several studies that show like a 20% difference just from sleep deprivation or um, other manageable factors in healthy males that are otherwise fine. So uh, I really try to take the best information from both sides and help other coaches with that and also myself with my clients and remember that, you know, ultimately this, these replacement solutions were created for more extreme cases, but there are also people who jump at those, uh, because it's easier. It's bypass. It's like, you just kind of, it's like the staples easy button. You hit it, you get a prescription and you're good to go. The, um, functional medicine route or nutrition and training is going to take more time. It's going to take more work and a lot of discipline versus, you know, trying to, just simply getting some blood work and uh, because you had a low reading one time and then hopping on a prescription. So I just try to be mindful that prescriptions can be permanent in the sense that they do potentially compromise your pituitary and overall hormonal axis in, in terms of what you might be able to do long-term unless you are under the supervision of a doctor in, incorporating other prescriptions to manage that one prescription because we do have variables there, right? So let's say you take testosterone, we now have to look out for your estrogen levels. We have to consider uh, testicular health in terms of, or do we care about fertility or is that no longer a concern because of age or um, you know priorities in life? So that's, even when we're having that conversation of conventional medicine versus functional medicine, we're still looking at the client as an individual and what their priorities are. I love that, dude, super in-depth. Now. Before, because we're running out of time, and of course, we're not going to get to any of the questions that you guys submitted, but we will do another one because we have a ton of questions, um, but that was good because we set the stage for plenty of like rapid fire style ones. Um, I have a few questions before we do sign off. Um, the first one being about you. What does your training and nutrition look like right now, man? Like, What is your main goal? Are you focusing on anything? Do you have anything dialed in? Or are you just kind of just intuitively eating? I'm just curious. Like, what is What do things look like for Sam Miller right now? So giving some context, so out of the past three weeks, I was in New York for kind of half the week. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Salt Lake City last week. I'll be in California half of this week. I got a week or two off, then I go to the Arnold, and then I'm in Scottsdale, and then I have a little break, and then I come out to you in Seattle, where we have our event on March 23rd. So uh, right now, my priority is uh, more so like frequency in terms of training, just being there, showing up. Um, I'm trying to manage the fact that I'm spending a lot of time on a plane. So that's being intelligent with my exercise selection. So in terms of my specific goals, I'm trying to do strength work without hurting myself, preserving existing strength levels that I have and kind of maintaining conditioning while doing that. Uh, one of my challenges when traveling is eating enough and making sure that I'm, you know, in a place of kind of nourishing my body. So that uh, that's kind of the focus on the nutrition side. I am uh, mindful in terms of, you know, I will weigh out some of my food or portion things or scoop or measure kind of uh, maintaining from time to time that like keen understanding of portion control. But uh, in terms of particular strategies, I mean, I, I'd say where I'm most dialed in is like around the training sessions. And then the rest of the day, like I know how much protein I need per meal and uh, kind of doing that throughout the day. Other times, you know, if I sense something's going on from either digestive standpoint or otherwise, I might add like a short intermittent fast if I'm traveling. And then we actually talked about this when I saw you in Arizona. But um, so for example, I flew back on Sunday. Saturday was probably a high, much higher calorie day for me, not normal food consumption either. So the first part of the day, Sunday, about half the day, like I just simply did kind of an intermittent fast, felt better and was ultimately comfortable and then went back to my normal eating and, and schedule on Sunday. So in terms of training, I'm probably resistant lifting, following a strength-based program uh, five, five days a week and then two days of um, conditioning, getting out of breath. So that would look like uh, sled, dragging the sled, carries, loaded carries, whether farmer's walks or otherwise, uh, jump rope, 
concept two rower bike if I have access to one. Um, and very rarely will I take like a complete day off unless it's like a travel day or I'll walk my dog and try to get a certain amount of steps, uh, for a light recovery, but pretty much always training at a minimum four days lifting, um, sometimes, you know, up to six. And then I'm usually trying to take a day where I'm doing, uh, more like sled work, mobility recovery. And, uh, sort of what we talked about in our training episode in terms of having one, one main movement that's going to be strength based for the day and then picking, you know, maybe a rep goal or using kind of a West side approach with that and working up to daily max and then using my, you know, BCDE block as like my hypertrophy work, any metabolic work that's going on, accessory work and balancing that out. So, uh, that's kind of how things are being divided right now, just in order to not be stupid and hurt myself because I've done that before where my life stress and travel has been a lot higher and I'll try and go in and do exactly what I do. And then my hips are tight, low backs tight and comp, you know, compromised performance, trying to push it and just, you know, leading with ego. And ultimately that leads to getting hurt. So trying to be consistent without being stupid, probably my best. Two answer. things for, for people to like take away from that is number one, you're never going to be able to go full throttle or have a perfect schedule, perfect routine, perfect macros. 24 seven, when life gets busy, when life throws curveballs at you, when you have other shit going on outside of the gym, you need to adjust accordingly. Um, I'm a great example. You can see my crutches in the background. Like with my crazy schedule and these fucking crutches that I'm going through right now, like my nutrition, my training, everything's thrown off. But instead of me freaking out, I use the tools, which is the second point of this. As you learn tools and educate yourself, you can kind of understand how to be intuitive and kind of flow through life situations so much easier, which is one of the main reasons like we're putting on the seminars to, to educate people on how to adjust along the way. But that being said, my next question for you is like, and you can go on about it or you can keep it quick. Like what is your main, I guess, not priority, but what is your goal with like the seminar? Like what do you want people to leave with when they leave from your talk? Like, what are the foundations that you're trying to instill in these coaches and clients that show up at our seminar? I just think having an understanding of what's going on, there's like so much information out there, even some of our recent applications. Um, I think there's confusion. People, people like know what to ask, but like there's a, there's a holdup between like science and application. There's a little bit of, uh, I think, we've got a lot of new coaches out there and that's amazing that they want to help people with their health and everything. But I think there's also a level of value that I'd like to provide for them and kind of like condense their timeline in terms of knowledge acquisition of what they're looking to do. I think if you're coming for your own personal fitness journey, uh, what I can share is the perspective of I've been coached for eight to 10 years personally. And then, you know, have also developed my own personal philosophies as well and work with a lot of different clients. So trying to give you, I think the biggest thing is perspective and then simplify what's complicated and draw parallels between themes that exist in training nutrition and, and hormones um, and, and kind of go from there. And I was just thinking about what you asked me about my personal situation. It seems super, super vague, but for people out there, like hopefully still somewhat helpful. I, I do have specific goals. Like I'm probably always getting a gram to 1.2 grams of pound per protein for protein. And like, you know, I know, I know what I'm doing on that side, but it's definitely a little less formal than it has been in the past. And, uh, but I do want people to remember, like, I didn't just jump to that. It's, you know, I'm still weighing and measuring in certain cases. I'm still, you know, I had measured and followed whether it's a meal plan or macro plan for years and years and years prior to, transitioning to that so it's just kind of where me and cody crutches mcgroom are at in our life right now <laughs> my main point and, was that like as you're educated it's easy to do that shit like that you said it casually yeah. and very vaguely because it doesn't stress you out to be able to intuitively do that and maintain results get results while this chaos is going on where most people Definitely. get stressed it's, it's out yeah. no yeah, but it's it not it's it not optimal, but I can I can maintain or improve slightly. Is it the best ever? But also partially what we're looking for, and this is what I tell people like clients all the time is, you know, I found a way to be consistent in my approach. And if you can be consistent and get the reps in the gym, like even if you're not training maximally all the time, Cody talked about Cody and I talked about this on the training podcast, you can show up at 90% and um it's not going through the motions, it's like accumulating 
uh, certain load and tension on your body over time in an intelligent fashion. And if you can consistently do that day after day, year after year, you're still going to look better than the majority of people and perform better than the majority of people anyways, just because of your consistency. So I think right now, if there's one thing I am trying to model for my clients and the people following along is I'm really pretty damn consistent, even given like, I don't even know what time zone, like, you know, I'm, I'm still adjusting time zones and doing all this stuff, but I'm still being consistent within that process. And, um, ultimately that's what will allow you to maintain your results and even improve upon them over time. So hopefully that makes sense. Um, I didn't want to get into like too nitty gritty detail with that. And then, um, yeah, I guess that was, that was all the questions. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. So the last thing, last but not least, we'll end on this note. You're at a dinner table you got three <laughs> seats in front of you. This is your chance to redeem your question. See if things have changed uh, since the last time you actually got to answer. Cause I didn't ask you last time you were on the show. It's been a while. And you texted me after you got off and we're like, I think I would choose this person. And so you have three empty seats, dead or alive, can't be friends or family who's sitting with you at this table. Man, because you answered this last time. Did you say like Seinfeld or something like that? I didn't, but I should have said Seinfeld. I can't believe I didn't say Seinfeld. I should have said Seinfeld. Seinfeld. (laughs) No, no. Uh, Brad and I were actually talking about this this weekend. Uh, My fiance loves it now too. Dude, even my daughter will sit there and watch it with us. It's hilarious. Crazy. I wonder what like her favorite her favorite character. Whew. Oh man. Shit, dude. I totally didn't think you were gonna ask me this question because you've already <laughs> asked me before. And now I'm like, all right. Who's the first people be... that come to mind? First people that come to mind. So I'm literally looking at a book on my table right now that's like Ryan Holiday, and he's a really good writer and um, great person. Like has a lot of philosophic philosophical perspective so i'm i'm looking at that which is kind of unfairly prompting me uh with with my answer um and since they can't be family or friends i do not know him i do have a lot of mentors who i consider to be friends so i can't really list them in that category uh do you remember what my answers were for last time i feel like i I had like a musical i don't I don't. I remember you texting me afterwards and said batman but (laughs) that was was about it shit Ah, uh, totally Batman. Um, so Bruce Wayne. No, the question be- is Batman or Bruce May- Bruce Wayne. But don't they have to be like real people? They can't be just like no. comics. I had somebody say a cartoon one time. Um, I can't remember what the cartoon was, but I was like, yeah, I can't say you know. I mean, it's your table. Cartoons. The dude next to me on the plane last time was watching anime and had sleep apnea and like drooling all over the place, dropping his iPad on me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on the cartoons oh, for now. Uh, all right, let's go Ryan Holiday. Uh, I need someone musical. So like, just cause I find that really, really fascinating. Um, I recently went to a Justin Timberlake concert. You can hate on him all you want, but dude can play guitar, piano, sing, dance and loop his own track. So like something like that would be pretty cool just to get perspective of someone with that creative mindset. He's a great um, actor too. <laughs> and he's got his dick part. he's got his dick in a box too so he can't go wrong uh i don't know i'm, I'm switching it up that time so i'm gonna go with that just because i feel like it'd be funny but also um be really cool i i will stick with ryan holiday just because the book is in front of me and i feel like he's literally studied so many people like seneca and marcus yeah. aurelius and all these people that had these historic like this classic historical perspective obstacle is the way was really good um so that's i'll stick with that and then my last one because you you went with like what socrates or like aristotle last time yeah yeah so i feel like right like he'd give me that level of perspective on there um and then i feel like i would want either an athlete or um Yeah, either an athlete or trying to think of. I already used it last time. Didn't I say Derek Jeter last time? I can't remember. I can't remember. I don't know. Or like a really great competitor. So maybe like Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, or Derek Jeter, like someone who's just a champion at at their craft and works really hard. I'm not going to say Tom Brady, even though the Super Bowl just happened. I'm not doing (laughs) it. Not doing it. 
Sorry, Pats fans. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think having the perspective of like an athlete, someone who's like well-versed in writing and history, and then someone who's really well-versed in music would provide for like very interesting perspective. I forget that they're all at the dinner table at the same time. Like when you ask me the question, I'm literally thinking about like one-on-one conversations yeah. with them. Next time when we do the q and I'm going to think of the dynamic between the people because I don't really feel like those three would get along super well, but all right. <laughs> so much thought into that question. I love it, man. Once again, dude, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, Guys, we're, if you are interested in the seminar with Sam and myself, like he said, it best, it's science meets application, what you guys can actually use inside your coaching practice. March 23rd in Seattle, you can click to buy a ticket now. It's in the description. If you want more information, you can email either one of us. Our emails will be in the show notes as well, and we will catch you guys next time.